start by asking you a question that I actually want you to answer. It doesn't have to be out loud. And I feel a little bad because it's kind of a hard question, and I would be very shocked if anybody has spent any time thinking about this in the last week. Um, so, and I'm going to give you permission up front. You can be as serious or lighthearted as you want to be in answering this question. A real man blank does or does not, and you can go, uh, what comes to mind when you fill in this blank? Oh, Mary, I, oh. <laughs> we have to dispel this myth right from the start. <laughs> a real man drinks his coffee black. Who all thought of that? That was one of the first things I thought of. And I love cream in my coffee. Anybody else? A real man does or does not? Does not cry. Does not cry. Interesting, that was the second one that I thought of. Who all else thought of that? And, you know, honestly, that's a myth that we do need to deal with. Um, if that's a true definition, I'm in trouble. Um, so a real man does not cry. Often repeated, but is not true. Uh, what else comes to mind? A real man is okay with crying. All right. Thank you. Anyone else? Hopefully there's more to it than whether we cry or not and how we drink our coffee. <laughs> so I, I'll give you a little background on this. Um, recently I was listening to a podcast for, for dads um, on raising children and specifically on raising young men. And he was bringing out how often you know, you'll hear people say things like, you know, be a man or act like a man. But he said, what does that mean? Like, what where are you headed with that? What, what does it mean? And he was bringing out how crucial it is that we need to define what we mean by godly manhood and, and godly womanhood. And, you know, in my life with a son who turned 13, another one who's 11, um, I've been, and as a man, I've thought a lot about this and read books, but I had this kind of horrifying thought. I've got a daughter who's five. I don't think I've read any books on what it means to be a godly lady. So I have an assignment um, in that regard. Uh, but today I do want to talk about what does it mean to be a godly man? Um, and I hope, I mean, I will say up front, it feels a little awkward to talk about this in a mixed group. I hope that the ladies don't check out on me. I hope that there's things that you can gather here that we can rejoice in God's good design and how to relate uh, to the men in your life and in, in your church. So, And I'm open for input on what it means to be a godly lady. That's another one that I want, want to dig into. But when people answer this question, um, often people will go with physical traits. You know, uh, you can think about uh, the strength of a man or how a man looks. Um, people will go down the road of intelligence. What does a man know? Uh, people will go down the road of accomplishment or maybe it's money. Or often people will talk about uh, men's ability to handle pain and discomfort. Um, so one story that came to mind, I have an uncle who, and I don't, I, I don't even know why he did this, but I'm told that he wanted to go swimming every day out of the year. And I think he got it done except for one day. He lived in a very cold part of Maryland. So this included breaking the ice, jumping in the water. I, I don't know if that makes him a man. I think it's awesome, though. Um, but it's, you know, it probably doesn't prove whether you're a man or not. Um, and so today I'd like us just to consider... 
from God's perspective, what, what does he call men to do? And this is going to be pretty, I guess, pretty big picture and more on what our role should be and not as nitty-gritty in, in the uh, little details of all the important things of our character. I hope that comes through, but it's a little more big picture of what is God's design um, as we look at this. So I will say um, I was very blessed by Brandon reading some of the passages I was planning to read out of Genesis 1 um, and Genesis 5. But we're going to go, I'd like to just start and look at Genesis. What is God's intent? And I'm specifically focusing on manhood, but the, the passages also deal uh, with ladies' roles. So let's, let's jump in there. I want to look at that story, um, draw some things out, and then share a few principles um, at the end of that. And I still wonder, does anybody have a good answer to this that you haven't shared yet? A real man. Maybe by the end you will. So let's go, uh, let's go to Genesis 1, where God creates uh, men, men and women, and try to discern what is God's intent uh, in creating us male and female. So Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I'm not going to read through all of creation, but there, there is a day after day, there's a pattern where God looks at it and he declares that it was good. The evening and the morning uh, was one day. So let's jump down to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So I want to just think a little bit um, about, about creation here, that God has made us in his image. And Brandon, thank you for talking about this already. Um, we are made in God's image, so we, we bear his likeness. And he has given both men and women the responsibility of ruling and having dominion over his creation. And to be made in the image of God also means that we can live in relationship with other people and with God. Um, most importantly, we have capacity for relationship beyond the animals. So God is very clear that to reflect the image of God, it takes both male and female. God is distinctly male, but to reflect his image takes both male and female together. So God made us in his image, male and female. And I'm going to say something that is both exceedingly obvious, pretty insightful, and actually controversial. Men and women are different. And God made us that way intentionally. And is it not amazing that that is actually a controversial um, statement? All you have to do is watch little boys and little girls, and you know God made us different. And you can watch us throughout all of our life and know that God made us different uh, for a reason, to reflect his, his image. I want to keep going here. And God, actually, let's, uh, I actually want to call attention to a couple quotes, and I'll, I'll get into Genesis 1. This is coming from Stu Weber, uh, one of my favorite authors, and 
people who has impacted me the most deeply in understanding what it means to be a godly man. Gender is one of the most basic and far-reaching expressions of the image of God, and the enemy loves nothing better than to distort the image of the God he hates. So as basic as it is of male and female, Satan loves to attack that and to distort that image. And I'd like to go on with another quote um, that he said, doesn't it strike you as incredibly odd that a culture which so prides itself on diversity is working so hard to destroy it in its most obvious and beautiful form that the politically correct buzzword diversity does not somehow apply to male and female differences that somehow men and women must be the same, that God's chosen vehicle to carry his image, mankind as male and female, is the one form of diversity we seem bent to not accept. I think that's rather striking uh, that Satan is attacking even the very basic uh, diversity that God set up to carry his image. Um, just a, other, a couple of quick comments on this, and this isn't the main Point, but I do want us to really hear this, that gender and roles are clearly under attack today. Um, at this point, they're called social constructs, that they're things that people have put in place, um, not recognizing that God actually has ordained these things. Um, I use the social media platform LinkedIn for work. It's, a very, it's supposed to be a very professional platform. And it's so amazing to me. I relate to these, these buyers and people who, because of the world we live in, have to clarify their pronouns, that they want to be referred to as he and him, she and her. And, and then you also have people who prefer to be called they and them and don't see this as, they call it non-binary, so it's not one or the other, it's either another option or neither. It's just, it's confusing. And so I want to be very, very clear that the people who are living this out are not the enemy. They are actually very deceived by the enemy when Satan comes and says, has God actually said this, and is this actually good? And so as we relate to this issue, we have to keep in mind that it is a deception of the evil one, and the people who are living this out are not the enemies. Um, they need the Lord to, to help with their confusion and, and what they're living out. So this is under attack. I'd like to jump back in here in uh, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Going on into chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want to continue with the story. I know that it's familiar, but just watching for what was God's intent uh, for, for man and how does that uh, play out in, in honoring him. So now Genesis 
2 is kind of zooming in. It's flashing back and really zooming in on day 6, on God creating man. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And I kind of, I would, have, I would love to see this. Um, the word for formed is the idea of basically working with dirt, and it's intriguing to me, but it's, it's the idea of basically a potter. So getting down and shaping something. So God shapes a man and uh, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I, you know, as often as I've read this, I don't think I've ever really thought about it, that it sounds like God created man, formed the garden, and then somehow moved the man into the garden, is how, how verse 8 reads. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So I'm going to just stop here. What is the, what is the purpose, or what has God designed uh, men to do? For one of the first things that we notice is that God put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So working has the idea of cultivating it or tending it, and keeping has the idea of protecting it. And one of the things that I find so interesting in this is when God put the, uh, the Levites into their role as priests, these are the exact same verbs that he has for the, for the priests. They are to serve in this capacity. So Adam is put in the garden, and it's clearly to work and to make it, to make it beautiful, to, um, to have dominion over it, to be creative with it. But it's also there's a keeping or a guarding of what was, um, of what was to come. So God gives all of us um, work to do, meaningful work. And I think it's important that we note that work was uh, established before the fall. Work is not the curse, um, for sure. So then God uh, comes along, and the next thing we notice is that God gave Adam a command. So Adam is clearly under authority, and God's word is to guide Adam. He is to walk in fear of, of God, um, it's interesting that God spoke to Adam. We don't know, I mean, I know that God did speak to Eve, but if you read the passage, God comes and gives Adam the instructions. And it seems like the intent is that Adam is to be the one to lead and to guard and to make sure that God's word gets passed on. So God comes and gives these instructions to Adam, gives him a command, um, and uh, he comes with a pretty strong warning. If you eat of the one tree I've told you not to, you're surely going to die. So the world is a dangerous place. It is good, but it's dangerous, and there's people that are counting on you. Let's keep going in the story and uh, see what we, what we learn. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this is the first time God is saying, look, this isn't good. Man is actually made to live in community. And so clearly this is talking about marriage, but it's much broader than that. Man is not designed to live alone. We're designed to live in relationship and in community. And so the, the Lord says there's not a helper that meets Adam's needs or, or is his, uh, fills up what's lacking. So if you think about men and women, we complement each other. One isn't better than the other, um, but we are needed together to show God's image. Let's keep going. And again, we know the story. But So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he had slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So I had mentioned that God formed Adam out of the dust, and when he creates the lady, um, he made, and that word is the idea of building. So I don't know if it's significant. It seems interesting that God formed man and he built, um, built the lady and brings her to Adam. So there, uh, again, we see a man and a lady together reflecting God's image, but men and ladies are very different. And I do believe that God actually wants us to enjoy those differences, and those differences are there um, to bring honor to him. I'm going to read a little bit. Again, this is um, Stu Weber, but he's quoting Gary Smalley. And it's a bit of an old story and kind of an over, maybe exaggerates the point, but I think it makes it well, just bringing out some of the differences between, between men and ladies. Author and speaker Gary Smalley really nails down some of these general characteristics of men and women in his somewhat whimsical buffalo and butterfly comparison. The butterfly has a keen sensitivity. It is sensitive to the slightest breeze. It noticed the beauty of even the tiniest flowers. Because of its sensitivity, it is constantly aware of all the changes going on around it, and it is able to react to the slightest variation in its environment. Thus, the butterfly reacts with swiftness towards anything that might hurt it. Try to catch one without a net sometime. If a, tiny pebble were if a tiny pebble were taped to its wings, the butterfly would be severely injured and eventually die. This is a powerful portrayal of the feminine side. Equally graphic is the description of the buffalo. The buffalo is another story. It is rough and calloused. It doesn't react to a breeze. It's not even affected by a 30-mile-an-hour wind. It just goes right on doing whatever it was doing. It was not, it's not aware of the smallest of flowers, nor does it appear to be sensitive to slight changes in its environment. Tape a pebble to the buffalo's back and he probably won't even feel it. The buffalo isn't rotten to the core just because he goes around stepping on pretty flowers. In fact, the buffalo's toughness is a tremendous asset. His strength, when harnessed, can pull a plow that four grown men can't pull. The man may tend to plow through circumstances while the woman may feel life and her surroundings with much more sensitivity. In our wise creator's providence, these differences were intended to be pleasurable, effective, and even fun. Yes, let's enjoy the differences. Let's capitalize on them. Let's fight the temptation to say, this is more valuable than that. Let's resist belittling one another for our God-ordained distinction. They enrich our lives. They're the rest of the story. In our, creative, in our creator's words, they are good. 
So I don't know that uh, it's quite as extreme as a butterfly and a buffalo, um, but there is truth in that, and you, you get the point of, of the differences. Okay, and so then man and woman lived happily ever after, and uh, nothing, nothing was difficult from here on out. I wish that was the case. I do want to read through the fall and, and just note a few things before we um, start applying some of the principles here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So who had God given the command to? God had given the command to the man. And here comes the serpent speaking directly to the lady and starting to cast doubt on what God had said. Did God actually say? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I don't know. It seems significant that she doesn't quote exactly what God said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the serpent comes and deceives Eve, and Adam is right there. We don't know exactly how close, but Adam is there, and he decides to take the fruit and eat and disregard God's word. Um, and their eyes were opened at that point. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And is this not so sad? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So who ate the fruit first? Eve, right? God comes looking for them, and he's looking, speaking first to Adam. He's clearly holding Adam responsible, saying, Adam, what happened? I ask you to lead. I ask you to cultivate. I ask you to protect, to walk according to my word. What happened? And so Adam says, uh, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Is this not the blame game? Look, the lady that you gave me gave me this fruit. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I'm not going to read all of the of the, what comes next, of the curses that go with this for the serpent and the man and the lady. But I do want to just read uh, what God says to the lady yet. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I don't want to highlight this to be hard on the ladies, but I just want to highlight this last part here. Um, where it talks about 
that their, her desire is going to be for the man. The only other place that it, I understand that it, this word is used is in the next chapter in Genesis 4, where God says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to take over you when he was talking to Cain. So part of this is a lady is going to want to take the lead over her husband, and the husband is going to have the desire to lead in a selfish way or to not lead. And so that's where um, I just wanted to point that out of, of part of the fall. So God comes and he speaks to the man. And at this point, this is a very depressing story if we stopped here. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to just point out that Christ came as the second Adam to live as a perfect man and to buy us back and also to, to redeem our role as men so that in his strength we can live and be who he wants us to be. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Two other things I want to mention at this point before I, I want to just highlight a few principles of godly manhood. Um, one, and this is really hard to understand, but marriage is actually a temporary thing that God has done to show Christ in the church. In other words, there's not marriage in heaven. And that's a thought that I can't quite get a hold of. And along with that, I think it's very important to have that in mind and also to think through that if a person is single, it in no way diminishes uh, their impact in the kingdom of God and their ability to reflect the image of God. Um, you have Paul, who was single, in the New Testament saying, look, I actually wish that everybody would remain single. And so when we're talking about the roles of men and women, it often gets narrowed down to marriage, but it's, it's all of life. It's not just, uh, just for those that are married. And it's important for us to note that as the church, we will be the bride of Christ. And that is a marriage uh, that will last forever. All right, so with Genesis 1 as our backdrop, um, this is probably the best definition of biblical manhood that I found, and I keep coming back to it over and over. Um, is it perfect? Probably not, but it's, it's one that I, I think really encapsulates what, what God um, is asking for men. A real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and seeks the greater goal of God's glory and reward. And this is put together by Robert Lewis. I'll read that again. A real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and seeks the greater goal of God's glory and reward. So just thinking about uh, Genesis 1 and, and other things related to this, I want to just share five things that I see that are important to me to understand God's design um, for for godly manhood or biblical masculinity. And the one to start with is that our identity needs to be found in Christ. Um, 
if you think about what it means to be a man, it's, it's something that needs to be, often needs to be called out on you by other men. And God, as our Father, wants us just to find our identity in Him, who we are, and to actually have our primary identity be as a son of God. Well, I th- um, also think of the verses in the New Testament that talk about God giving us His Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. And that is a term that is used for, as I understand it, little children. And so it's kind of like saying, Daddy. And so for those of us men, we will never be real men that honor God if we don't have the attitude of a little child uh, before our father. And one of the things that, um, that God directs for, for men, I think it's in Timothy, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But one of the things I picture is just is holding up our hands that recognizing, look, I'm a little child to you. I need your help. And that is the only posture from which I can live as a godly man, um, as a little child before um, a father who loves me. So if we are going to be a godly man, we must find our identity in Christ. Beyond that, we must live under God's authority. And I was thinking about Wayne's uh, illustration up here of the parts of, of people and who's at the very core, at the center. Who's at the center of our life? Is it, is it me or is it God? And if we're going to live in a way that honors God, it must be under God's authority. And this is so core in the, throughout all of Scripture, but just as men, are we willing to live under God's lead and God's word? I was thinking about how, how men are portrayed in society, and it's really pretty sad. I mean, it often comes down to, for guys my age, it comes down to sports, alcohol, uh, hobbies, women, and career are largely what, what is pointed out. And it really just shows that manhood, we're so prone to, to make our life about us and to not have Christ at the very center of that, and to allow Christ to be at the center. And some of those things are, are good in the rightful place, but when they become what we're chasing, our manhood gets um, off, off quickly. I was thinking about the kingdom of God, how awesome it is that he gives us an identity, he brings us into his kingdom, he gives us a purpose, he gives us a battle. These are all things that men want. And our lives have purpose far beyond today, if lived for God's kingdom. But the temptation is to get sucked into the here and now and about me, um, and to not have it matter for those things. I want to read a little bit of an article here about Buzz Aldrin. Uh, the article is coming from Dan Miller, and uh, Dan was retiring Um, And he was writing his intentions, and he's referencing Buzz's story. So the first part is about Buzz, and the second part is about Dan. On Sunday morning, July 20, 1969, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin took communion and read Jesus' word from John 15, 5. On the morning of July 21st, Neil Armstrong stepped out onto the moon's surface, followed 19 minutes later by Aldrin. Together they planted a flag, talked to President Nixon 
on their communication gear and gathered samples from the moon's surface. On the voyage back to Earth, Aldrin broadcast his reading of Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I consider the heavens the work of thy hands, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? But what should have been an incredible positive experience to prepare him for the next season of life nearly ruined him. During the three-week quarantine then required of astronauts upon returning from space, Aldrin immediately began an alcohol bender that didn't end for over nine years. His marriage of 21 years quickly decayed and ended, and his prestigious military career that earned him the flight privilege deteriorated and ended in disgrace. Encouraged by a therapist to take a regular job, he worked at a Cadillac dealership in Beverly Hills where he did not make a sale in six months. He's been arrested multiple times, charged with assault, now has three ex-wives, and in 2018 filed suit against his three children to remove them from his social media accounts, finances, and businesses. How did all of this happen? How could the first astronaut with a doctoral degree, a Presbyterian elder who was so successful and brilliant as Buzz Aldrin, experience such a negative shift? Aldrin himself gave the answer in his 2009 autobiography, Magnificent Desolation. What an incredible title for your autobiography. The, the transition from astronaut preparing to accomplish the next big thing to astronaut telling about the last big thing did not come easily to me. What does a man do for an encore? During the return flight from the moon, Aldrin became absorbed in negative thinking. Staring down at the tiny ball called Earth, he realized he had no next big thing. Nothing could top what he had just done. His future held nothing to look forward to. He had peaked at 39 years old, and alcohol provided just the solution to ease the pain of that recognition. According to Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach, when your status becomes more important than your growth, you typically stop growing. However, when growth is your ongoing motive, then status continues to increase as well but you won't be attracted to the status. The desire for growth draws you forward. You can walk away from status to create a new one. And then Dan Miller goes on to say, if I retire in the traditional sense, if you retire in the traditional sense, you may have just told your mind and body they're no longer important. That limited future will shrink your current identity and make you less capable of serving and contributing today. So the point of the story is not to speak about retirement, but just to make the point that as men we are called for a purpose far beyond ourselves, and our purpose is actually God and his kingdom. And we cannot find identity in other things that don't last, or we will, uh, we will run, our ship will run aground. All right, the third thing that I believe it means is to take initiative, that we are, as men, we are called to step in when we see a need. We're called to step forward. <laughs> Thinking about uh, two words that are used to describe men in the New Testament, and the one is head. And the word for head just literally means a director or a chief. And Jesus shows us that that means done in a very tender, caring way that puts other people first. But men are called to take initiative and to lead. The question for you men, what is it that makes you feel passive? Can anybody... Any other guys relate to, to feeling passive? And I'll, I'll be honest, a couple of things for me. When I have to make a decision and I don't know what to do, 
It's real easy to do nothing when I don't know what to do. Another uh, place that I see it in myself is I've got to make a decision, and both or any option has negative impact on people. And then that'll make me feel passive, or just simply the fear of getting it wrong. But as men, we are called to take initiative. And we are called to accept authority, again, in a serving way. God has just orchestrated and designed authority. It's in the Godhead. It's in creation. Everywhere we go, God has authority and um, has established authority. So God's design and authority are under attack. One of the things that we have to, to be honest with is that when authority is misused, it hurts people and people react. And that would be a topic for a whole sermon. But one of the things I find incredibly interesting and sad is, uh, so Webster's or Oxford Dictionary chooses a word of the year. In 2018, they, they chose the word toxic as the word of the year. They thought it best illustrated culture at that point. Now, when you look at what words are associated with it, the second most common association with the word toxic beyond all of the things you would expect about you know, toxic chemicals and all of this is the phrase toxic masculinity it was the second most association uh, with the term toxic. So I think we have to recognize that authority, when not handled well, hurts people. But we also have to recognize that authority, as God established it, is under attack. And, uh, it's, and we're called to lead and to, again, just point people back to God and his word. The fourth thing uh, is that we need to accept responsibility to serve. And we are, um, as men, we're called to do our duty and to just serve. Jesus came and modeled that. He was a servant. When we serve and lead, we need to keep in mind that the people we relate to have physical needs. They have emotional needs and spiritual needs. And as men, it's probably easy to, or we may find one or two of those categories easier than the other. But as men, we are called to serve in meeting physical needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. The word the, the New Testament uses to describe this is the term husband. And it's just basically a, a gardener, somebody that takes care of things, that, that manages and stewards. I'm not going to read this because of time. Uh, this is David calling Solomon to be a man and pointing out uh, what that means. You can check it out in 1 Kings 2. Uh, there are, in Scripture, there's almost always a few ideas that rise to the top of being a man, and that is to be strong, to fulfill the role that God has asked you to do, and to, to keep your life according to God's Word. The last one I want to point out is just guarding your heart. That when it comes to being a godly man, it's, it's about our heart and our character. Um, it is about who we are before what we do. I was thinking about the, um, in the New Testament where God outlines the, the characteristics of a leader in the church. And it's just that. It's characteristics more than talents. It's who we are. It's our character. And I believe that God calls all men to those characteristics because they are a mark of maturity. Thinking about guarding your heart, um, 
one of the things that you have to give to the U.S. military is they know how to speak to men in a way that connects with men. Just thinking about some of their, their advertising slogans, you know, be all that you can be. Or the Marines, the one that just actually kind of cracks me up, but it's so great. Um, they say, we don't promise you a rose garden. The Marines are looking for a few good men. They know that God has hardwired men for challenges. But the ugly side of all of this um, is you think about the men who go there and serve and then come out of war and combat and don't know what to do with it. And, and so right now, and I, I haven't looked up recent statistics, but as of 2016, there was something like 20 to 22 uh, people from the military who commit suicide every day. But what's shocking is, what do you think the relationship is between combat and suicide? So my assumption is that it's just all combat related. But I was listening to a TED talk, and again, I didn't research him a lot, but according to the TED talk of a guy that works in the military, he said there's actually no correlation between combat and suicide. So what in the world is going on? And as he's worked with veteran after veteran, he says, in his opinion, that if you teach a man to kind of stuff your emotions and not have sympathy because you're there in war, you have to stuff sympathy, and you're not allowed to share your weaknesses, and you teach a man to kill, where does that end up? It ends up in suicide. And so I know that this is a, that's kind of an extreme example for where we're at, but I mean, the military is kind of the, I guess, epitome of, of a macho man, as it were, right? But it does all come down to the heart. As men, we are not designed to stuff our emotions. We're not designed to not need help. We're designed to live for a purpose beyond ourselves. And so as men, we have to guard our heart. Everything flows out of our heart. Um, we have to allow Christ to just to live there, to meet us, to heal us, to change us, and live out of a, a heart and character um, for him. So guard your heart. In conclusion, uh, for the men here, leading is scary. Leading is difficult if you are anything uh, like me. And there are many days where you feel in over your head. Can any other guys relate to that? You're probably more, more aware of your own weaknesses than most people are. Beyond that, uh, Satan loves to take out, well, men and women, but men in particular. And he loves to have men who are hurt and not willing to lead because they've been hurt. He loves to paralyze men with comparisons. And he loves to paralyze men with any sin or failure. And I don't think there's anything that will take away a man's willingness to lead an initiative as sin. And it, it should. It needs to be dealt with. Um, but just for the men, I don't, know, I don't know what it is that you face, uh, but I do want to encourage you that in Christ, he will deal with those things and does call you to, to lead and to take initiative. 
So we are called to meet the challenge of the day, whatever it is for us. People are accounting on us, and our decisions have impact. I'd invite you just to stand and to close, Wayne. I'd like you to pray for the men in the church and that are here. And Dave, I'd like you to close.